Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands, people that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-Game. My guest on today's podcast, on the A-Game podcast, is Solomon Floyd. Solomon Floyd is a tertiary market investor, uh, meaning that he invests in a lot of markets that other people don't go. He's good at finding emerging markets and building businesses there. And he does a lot of really unique things that I uh, recently spent some time in Hawaii with him talking about some of the military housing and some of the fundraising that he's doing for some private funding and a lot of really cool, interesting things. So I asked him to do a podcast with me and he jumped on here, so... I will let you do a, a quick intro on yourself and then we'll jump into it, Solomon Floyd. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. Um, so basically, yeah, I'm the CEO and founder of Reunion Investments. Uh, we are a economic development firm and tertiary market development firm. So we go into uh, markets a lot of people don't really want to go into and we try to make them better by using investment real estate um, and guaranteed government rental income. That's awesome, man. Uh, I... I heard you speak in uh, in Maui, which was an awesome week, a great place to go learn. And you were doing stuff that was a lot different than a lot of the other people that I've talked to, and especially on the uh, on the military housing side, some of the markets and things that I saw you working in. I really liked your behind it because I've always felt a little bit like that too. So one of the things that people always start to ask is, "Hey, where's the hot market? Where's the hot market? Where's the hot market?" And I the example I give them is, I might not necessarily want to invest only in a hot market because if you think of it like dinner, when people go, hey man, where's the hottest restaurant in town? I'll tell you the best place in town. And then you go there and they go, hey, I have a table for you a month from now. Yeah. And you go, but I'm, I'm hungry today. I want to eat today. Yeah, exactly. So well, yeah, you get a good meal. If you're only relying on the hottest spots, it's not that you can't get deals there, but they could be super competitive. The price points could be crazy. The hot market that they're using for those statistics might not even necessarily be what we're looking for. Maybe it's a hot market to flip and we want to cash flow. Maybe it's a hot market to sell and we want to buy. So what I've always liked is finding some of those major markets and looking around some of the, the suburbs of the tertiary markets that ripple around those ones. And I found that your money goes a lot further. They tend to be a little bit less competitive. And if you do them right, you can find some markets that the the economics from the the hot markets surrounding it will bring up the values there. And it sounds like you have a little bit more of a scientific approach to that than just saying, find a, a major city and invest around it. So I really wanted to see a little bit with you being an economic development expert, um, what are some of the things that you look at for your tertiary markets? Excri describe your strategies and figure how your investors and the stuff that you do, how do you find those markets? How do you find those markets? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, one of my biggest uh, rules is the zero competition theory. So what I do is I, I find the biggest market in my case, right, lo locally where I live is Dallas. Um, and I can't swing a dead cat around here without hitting a $100,000 plus uh, investment property. So what I do is I look for where everybody's, everybody's marketing and I draw a circle and I kind of just try to figure out where everybody's not marketing. And those are going to be the markets that I'm going to find. Um, and a lot of people, you know, they'll ask you why those markets, right? Or ew, gross. Um, the real truth is it's, it's gross for you, but you don't have to live there. Somebody else does. And what we do is we find markets, for example, like Wichita Falls, Texas, and, and I can identify 
the one group of people I can make the majority of my rental income through, which is in this case, the military. Um, but on top of that, right, as a real estate entrepreneur, real estate investor, if I just stopped at building homes for military members, I really wouldn't be in that much business. Um, so I'd only make a portion of the income that I I'd plan on making if I were to build for them, um, their commercial uh, aspects, right? So I can build not only the housing for the military members, I can also build the commercial units for the military members, which is their gyms, their smoothie places, their coffee shops, um, whatever it is, I can build all that knowing that this one, the military members can go there and two, the civilians who now work in this military town have better paying jobs and they can now afford um, better housing. And guess who's providing that better housing? Me. So I can completely bring up a market using the one aspect or the one entity that's there um, to drive the rest of the economic growth and one, make the economy better and two, make my pockets look a little bit bigger. That's awesome. Now, part of your business strategy is you raise funding and then you go in and you buy a lot of areas. You put the military in there as what I understand. And then you're, you're using third-party management and then you're paying back investors a rate of return for those houses. Are you, are you refinancing out? Are you buying them in cash? What, what's a little bit of the pitch? And backtracking, the reason I ask is because I know sometimes when I go and I try and raise funds from investors, exactly like you said, you give them a market and they go, oh, and they go, well, I, you know, I want to be in Miami. I want to be in LA. And it's like, well, yeah, you can get something that sounds nice to say to somebody else. I own property. Pictures look good, but in those markets, your, your cash flow, your rate of return, your profits really aren't that. So do you want a bigger bank account or do you want something you can go tell your friends look sexy? And in some of the markets you're talking about, the, the returns are really what make it an attractive deal. But what are some of the things or objections that you're finding that normal people will have when they don't know about those markets, when they're uneducated about the actual business model that you have there? Well, I think depending on your role in the real estate investment, I think for wholesalers, um, the biggest thing you're going to have to to sell to somebody is a program, right? Like not only do I have this property, but I have a renter and I have a process to get more renters in place. Um, also rehab crews, that's going to be the biggest thing as well. Um, it's hard telling somebody to invest money in a place that's two and a half hours away because they don't want to drive that far. It's also hard finding a rehab crew that's of decent rapport and can actually, that you trust, that's going to want to drive out there and go do those deals. Um, so for my company, we're vertically integrated. I not only own the wholesale side of my business, I own the rehab side of my business. I don't only own the rehab and uh, wholesale side, I also own my property management side because these investors are going to feel comfortable with you, the person with the idea versus just the idea. And if you as a wholesaler can offer somebody more than just the property, um, investors are more likely to say yes to you because you are their go-to person and it's all vertically integrated, which means they've got no worries, right? Should there be an issue, you're the person they call. They don't have to call eight different people. So you're eliminating the headache completely. And that's what Reunion does, my company. Um, and basically, that's one of the bigger things that I think you know a lot of people will say, oh, well, there's not this, there's not that. You need to get them used to the fact that, listen, this is not that kind of a market. Right. We're not going to go in and build, you know, 18 different office centers. We don't need to build a hundred unit apartment complexes. We only need to build 30. And what you'll see is these are properties that will grow in appreciation. And then a big analogy we've been using recently is these are properties whose values are still stuck in 2018. Sorry, 2008. Um, we're bringing them up to values now in 2019. So a property you'll buy in these markets for 30 grand. By the time you're done fixing it up, it's going to be worth $110,000. And that's a real big difference. It's not 
$450,000, but it's enough for investors to make their returns and see what they want to see from a market that they have no clue about. And that's the thing you have to focus on. That's awesome. What type of, um, what type of strategies are you using to, to purchase these? And then how are they seeing their equity in there? So are you giving them, are you wholesaling them the deal and then seeing the process through for the construction and the management and then taking the fees or are you borrowing the money, refinancing them out, keeping them themselves in your company, a little bit of a mixed bag of everything? What's, what's a little bit of what your strategies are in these markets for your, for your personal business? Yeah. So I think personally, it's a matter of, uh, of everything, right? Depending on the deal, not everything is suitable for one strategy. So um, our union's process is we help find investors and the investors say, well, I just want to do a burr strategy. Um, we do the burr relatively easy, right? We buy it for 30, we fix it for um, 50, and then we refinance out for $115,000 cash out refi. You've got cash in hand and it's rented. And our starting rent for any of our markets is $1,100. So you can automatically put yourself over that amount. Um, we charge 7% for our property management. Other people may charge more, other people may charge less. Um, so once you kind of get all those factors in place, you can use any of these strategies. And because it's such a low risk market, you don't have to worry about somebody coming in there and um, completely blowing it up for you, especially if, if you're kind of the only person in the market doing what you're doing. But a lot of things that we're seeing right now are rentals are very big in these tertiary markets. So being able to provide a mid-tier luxury um, rental. And when I say mid-tier luxury, I just mean updated windows, um, black appliances, some sort of different style of rock or wood countertop, whatever it is. Um, that's mid-tier luxury. That's what we provide. And that's where we're able to see those $1,100, $1,200, $1,300 rents in some places where we bought the property all in for maybe you know, $80,000, $95,000. That's awesome, man. And for people who don't know that strategy, I know I was talking to somebody recently and it's funny because you assume when you do these things and when you're always in circles that talk, that, that language that everybody understands what we do. But that strategy right there, if you think about it, when you buy the property, you fix it up and then literally a bank gives you all of your money back exactly. plus profit yeah. and you literally get that profit tax-free out. You still have the equity in the property. You still have the cash flow. You still have the asset. And what I like about the markets that you're investing in is they're not going to go, like you said, three, four, five hundred thousand, which to me is safer. Again, when people go, well, look how much this market appreciated. Where we are in the market right now, you can't look at the last two or three years of appreciation and assume that that's what's going to keep happening because most likely it's not. And as uh, my buddy Lee Kearney always says, the markets that are hot as hell when things are good are freezing cold when things are bad. And in the markets you're seeing, a good enough push that you can make money, but not these outrageous, crazy highs and lows. So you get a lot more stability. And I feel like the price points that you're in for your strategy, when you're buying and holding for solid cash flow in those types of markets, if the economy starts to go down, if CNN tells you that the housing market to suck, yeah. you're still totally okay because of where you're at. The people are still going to be renting your economy and they're based on the military. They're not going anywhere. And the way I always look at it, if you're in these C and these B neighborhoods, the things that's going to drive the market is going to be the fundability. So when people get scared and they tighten up on funding, supply and demand is going to show you that your rent's probably going to go up and you're going to have more of a demand for people looking for rentals because they can't get financing. So I feel like you're really in that sweet spot that you can make money now and worst case scenario, things go bad. You're still really protected. Your investors are still protected. Your asset is still in good shape. I, I really like that. Is that a little bit of what you're looking at too? I mean, what we're seeing a lot of right now, which has been crazy, is uh, you know we 
when I was in Hawaii last, uh, we had literally just got zoning approval on 22 townhomes in Burke Burnett, Texas. Um, and the original thought was let's rent them out to the military members. This should be super easy, super simple. Um, what ended up happening was we pre-sold every single one of them without them even being built yet, without us even doing dirt work. They are all pre-sold, um, all under contract now. And we were going to build them for 110000 um, but we ended up selling every single one of them at 180000 So we're seeing people owning these, these new homes, but they don't want these large, big homes like people have been building in the past. They want that 1,100 starter 1100 square foot starter home because that's what's not available to them. So my big thing, and I think you and I um, kind of got this when we were in Hawaii with Jared was um, find what's not there and provide it. And new homes and new housing is a real big thing. Builders are skeptical of going back into those markets and building large quantities of homes. The simple thing to do is just go to the local government and ask, hey, how many people are moving here? What can I do to boost economies? What can I do to boost the amount of people that you want to move here? Because a local government's not going to fight you if you want to increase the amount of people living in their city and the amount of jobs coming in there as well. And that's the big thing is um, you can do it yourself or you can work with a company like ours and attack the real estate situation from three different sides. And that's housing, the guaranteed, right? Working with these tertiary markets. There are a lot of military bases, hospitals, factories, um, places you can definitely make sure that you get the right amount of renters to make sure that everything else is gonna work out for you, which is once you build that rental side and that home ownership side, you can start building the business side. Once you start building the business side, you can start building your multifamily assisted living, brewery, whatever else comes after that. Um, and I think that's the beautiful aspect of these markets is everything is so cheap. And I don't know why anybody's deciding that they're gonna you know, build a 30 unit apartment complex in Dallas for you know, 26 million, they can go build it in Wichita Falls or Burke Burnett for, I don't know, maybe maybe $5 million, right? That's a really big difference. And the rents will show that that's a really good investment. Something that's overinflated isn't going to work out for everybody in the long term. And a lot of people are noticing that now. So they're looking for markets like these. So tips for all you wholesalers out there and anybody who wants to go buy properties, um, look for properties that need at max fifty to $60,000 worth of work. And hopefully your contractor will tell you that that's the case. But those are the properties we're seeing the most appreciation in if we buy them from forty dollars to $50,000. And we're seeing somewhere closer to like 135 ranges, 145 ranges. So again, you're not going to become a millionaire off of selling two homes, but you are going to definitely make a dent in your cash flow supply um, from just you know five or six. I think that's awesome, man. And then uh, touching on some of this, so when you say economic development, people don't really know what that means in a lot of different stages of real estate. So explain to a little bit, if somebody has no idea, what is it that you do? What does economic development actually mean? Yeah. So the economic development is a little bit of what I touched on. It's focusing on the entire economy of, of an entire tertiary market or a market itself. So for example, a hotspot to do a lot of economic development for people is by hospitals. The properties over there are either distressed or super cheap or the city's giving them away in order to make that a livable area for the people who work there. Those people who work there are going to spend their money there, which encourages people to build commercial units. Um, those people who then are living in apartments are going to want to buy homes. So it's creating this cycle of development um, in economics that allows investors to, to profit and the people to, to prosper. 
Um, we do this by using investment real estate. Other people do it by putting in a Starbucks or putting in a large commercial company first and expecting people to build around that. Um, we do the exact opposite by building a rep, building it up first, and then we encourage our own versions of businesses to start up. So a big person we work with and what I would encourage a lot of you to work with is go to the local chamber of commerce, see who needs a new space, see who wants something different. Um, if they don't have a co-working space, but they have all these small businesses, a co-working space is the right way to go. The cities that we've done co-working spaces in have always run them for us. I don't run or operate a single co-working space. The cities take care of that for me and they can encourage that new growth better than I can because it's something that, that they're vested in. It's their city, right? And that's the other big thing. So um, yeah, with the economic development, it's all about figuring out what the cities need. So if they need a bunch of new small businesses, maybe a food truck park, right? And then you kind of build some uh, townhomes or apartments around that food truck park. And then, you know, a little grocery store right there in case people want to go grab food. That's the economic development that we do with working with the cities um, at hand. The other thing you can do um, that we did was, you know, we got a government housing contract. Um, there are a few of them out there that you can take advantage of. VASH is one of them. Um, and that's V-A-S-H. That's a program for homeless veterans. For those people who have homes in the VASH program, you get guaranteed rent for the one year of the veteran living there. Um, and that's huge. Now, a lot of people may think, I don't want a homeless veteran living in my house. Um, they do have to go through certain training programs and requirements in order to qualify for VASH housing. So don't be afraid of guaranteed um, yearly income from homeless veterans um, because the federal government's looking out for landlords. And as long as you know you lay down the ground rules, most of the time you're set to go. We haven't had a single problem with the 110 VASH homes that we have. That's awesome, man. And uh, to your point, you know, it's all, I think, part of the screen process as well. Like you just said, I, I hear people that go, oh, you know what? I don't want Section 8. And I go, well, I've, I've had more problems with non-Section 8 tenants than Section 8 tenants. And it's all a matter of like how much are you doing and, and some of those markets, especially. I know people that have invested in the exact same market as another investor. They could have properties right next door to each other. One of them is a little bit more diligent about who they put in. They do their homework. They're not quick just to fill things up and have this economic vacancies there. One of them is building right next to the other one does great. The other one, everybody's making any money and they got foreclosures on it. So it really is about putting those processes in place. And that's what I really like about what you're doing is I like that you educate people, but at the same time, all of the expertise that you have, all the pieces you put together from running the construction crews, screening the construction crews, having the property managed in there, educating the investors, working with the cities, somebody can go do all that stuff, but that takes a lot of time. And what I have found is you can't be good at everything. And if you've got all of those things already in place, it makes an easy thing when somebody goes, I want to find a way to make money. I can make money in my San Diego market. I can make money in my New York market. I'd rather cut you a check or have you find me a property or you explain to me how I can just kind of sit back and have my money make money for me. And I think you provide a huge service like that. And I really think it's important because there's a lot of people that are attempting to do that, but they don't really have the knowledge and they don't really hold themselves up to that standard to do good business. They just want a quick check and they're not worried about the next one. And the way you're making relationships in these cities, I think you're protecting the investors long-term. And I think that's why when a lot of other investors wind up being blown away when the market turns. I think you're going to be somebody who's here, you know, thriving better than ever because you do the right thing and you set those foundations in place. And that's sort of the biggest part is, you know, it's great to go into a city with your own vision, but go someplace and ask the people what they want. And it may be different than yours. Doesn't mean you have to change or cancel your vision. You just may need to do a few different things to make it fit everybody's needs that or you build something else. 
and that's always okay. Um, when it comes down to it, you know, I've tried to build maybe six breweries and each time it has turned into something different because that's not what the people wanted. So my first thing that I do, I go to a city council meeting, I introduce myself, I say, listen, I'm not just a wholesaler, I'm not just an investor, I'm not just gonna come in here and kick your walls down. Um, I'm here to protect what you need in your city to make sure that it's comfortable for you because I'm not gonna live there. They are. And that's really the key to making the most of your money is building for the people who are there because they're the ones who are gonna pay to use it. I get a lot of questions from people on uh, wanting to pick my brain, wanting to ask me about what I do, how do I do it, all kinds of things across the spectrum. One of the things I try and answer back with is there's a few different ways that we can work together. People can either um, participate by being a buyer, being a seller, or being a partner, and that's really the best way to learn. So if people have questions that have reached out to me, the best thing to do is jump on www.nicknicknick.com. And you can schedule a consultation if you're looking to sell properties, buy part properties, partner on some deals, or just get a general consultation to see where we can even fit in and where we can do business together. On any level, there's options for that to set some stuff up. So please visit www.nicknicknick.com to buy, to sell, or to partner on real estate deals or opportunities. That is the place to go. That is the best way to start making money and learning the process. So touching on that, when you first go into some markets, have there been times that you go and you meet with the city or you go and you start to try and deal with the city and realize that they're not very easy to work with? And does that divert you from investing in that market at all? Because I've, I've had that happen that I go, okay, you know, Jaron and I were going to do some stuff in New York. We went in, we met with the village. They were a nightmare right off the bat. And I was like, you know what? This is just not going to be worth the time. And then coming to some places, um, some of the people in Oklahoma, some of the markets you and I have done stuff in, some of the stuff around here in Chicago, they're bending over backwards trying to help you. They're meeting you. They're walking properties with you. They're offering incentives, grants. And like you said, I found the biggest thing is if you walk in and you give them uh, a little bit of the vision of, well, I'm just looking to create what you need. I'm not looking to come in here and paint that picture for you. That's when you have a bad experience. But when you're kind of open to, you tell me what needs you need me to fill and I'll come in and I'll find the best way to do that a little bit more open. And once they're open and they, they believe in you and they believe in your vision and they're on your side, you get a lot further with all the stuff that we're trying to do and they don't put up as many roadblocks. And I feel that makes a massive difference in whether or not you even want to be in those cities. Uh, what are you finding as far as the pros and cons in some of the cities you go into? So for me, it's not about reinventing the wheel, right? Um, some cities are, you know, they have their heritage and that's very proud. Some of them, you know, want you to recreate an entire old timey down town with the exact same businesses they had 30 years ago um it's a lot harder to go up to a, to, to somebody and say listen you know there's a reason your soda fountain didn't work out because mm-hmm. no one uses it anymore right i can get soda at my house so why don't we try something different um that we can still name it the old soda fountain but it's actually a bar has that sound and it's really about again not taking their vision or telling them that it's wrong it's primarily just about saying well, how can we work together on this? Um, all the 15 cities that we work in, we've had only maybe three very serious problems. And that was because I didn't consult with them first. I just went in and put up whatever I wanted. And I think that's one of the big things a lot of people have a problem with is if it's not zoned for it, they'll just say, all right, screw it. I don't want to work with it. You'll find in a lot of these tertiary markets that um, none of them have zoning for anything. None of them. 
because this has never been a thing. So my best advice to you would be work with them on their zoning or hire a consultant to work with them on their zoning. Better you can focus, at least I know in the state of Texas, on something called an extraterritorial jurisdiction zone called an EJT zone. Um, what this is, is it basically it's a zone around the city where they can encroach and move and basically annex property, but um, it's not zoned for anything, which means you could essentially build anything out there because it's not zoned for. So if you have a problem working within that city, um, within within side of its EGTJ zone, if you move outside of that zone, you'll be able to build and kind of openly do what you need to do in that market. And most cities in America have them. You just need to be very careful about um, which cities you go into to do it with. That's awesome, man. That's huge. So touching on the cities, I know you use the term community a lot when you're talking about your economic developments. Uh, what is community to you and how is that factor in as an important piece of what you do as an economic developer? Yeah, I think, you know, building for the community is key. So if it's a, uh, for example, we work in a few college towns and college towns are tough because for, for some reason, a lot of towns haven't realized in order to keep the students there after they graduate, they need to create jobs for them. Um, a lot of them are focusing on more housing and more housing is cool. It's okay. But what good is it if it's only rented nine months of the year? So I would say a big thing that you have to do is build for the community, which is community does this. I'm going to build for this. It's an oil filled community. You know what oil people really like? They need to get their boots clean. They need a place to, to live temporarily. They have these big trucks. Like I build for the community and it's not necessarily playing on the stereotypes, but sit down at a local coffee shop someday and just kind of like, watch everybody. And what you'll see is, uh, this is what I need to build for them, right? People are, people are in a rush to do this. Or maybe I should work with the city on, you know, putting bus stops someplace or, um, you know, a place for people to, to go and do things within that community. Again, you don't have to live there. So build for the people who are there and they're going to pay you to utilize the thing that you build for them every time. The one thing I've learned in this business is everybody pays for help whether they need it or not. I don't know how to fix everything on my car, so I use a mechanic. Sometimes I don't like doing an oil change, so I use a mechanic. I don't know how to do everything on my computer, so I'll bring in my tech guy, right? Um, same thing goes for cities. If a city can't do it itself, be prepared to be paid by that city or the citizens to do it for them. I think that's awesome. And again, it's all taking the path of least resistance. And when you do that, I think it makes a big difference. And I hear a lot of people well, you know, people are coming in and trying to invest in my market. They don't even understand my market. But I find exactly like you just said that sometimes people are stuck in two, three decades ago. And this is how it used to be. And this is how we still want. And they're trying to hold on to that. And although they want that, that's not maybe necessarily what the city wants or what the people want or what the city really needs to grow. And that's maybe part of the reason why it's still is and somebody like you comes in and helps bring some eyes on it and bring some income and bring some revenue and bring some attention. And I think that stuff's really cool. I think that starts to play a really big factor with when things happen. So um, you reminded me, we were talking to the city here uh, outside Chicago about a project we wanted to do. And the guy was like, look, you know, we've already worked on some stuff with you. You've already showed us that you're serious. So here's the reality is no matter what you want to put in here, you're going to have a handful of people that are going to show up and they're going to kick and they're going to scream and they're going to huff and they're going to puff. And no matter what your idea is, they're going to be against it. You want blue, they want green. You want green, they want blue. He goes, so what I always suggest is you have a couple of meetings ahead of time. Let them come and 
blow their steam and, and get it off their chest. And so they can do it before you actually get to the city meeting. And when you let them get it off their chest, then they're more open to hear it. And once they're more open to hear it, they're more open to receive it. They see that you're not the big bad wolf. You're not coming to, you know, take over and make some crazy thing there. You almost always ends better. But every time they don't do that, it gets, it gets denied. And he said, at the end of the day, when you have the support of the city, the people can really be for or against whatever it is, but the city's really going to be the final deciding factor because they're the ones that are responsible for the revenue and the profit and the income and the longevity of that city. So, you know, I think what you're doing is just smart, man. Most people don't think that way. Most people come in with their vision and they, they, want, they want it one way. The people in the city want it to live there. But really what you're doing is looking at it more of a business, which I think is just huge, man. So uh, one of the other things we were talking about was a uh, project cycle. So talk me through a typical project cycle in your business. Yeah. So um, essentially the way that it would work, and again, you touched on something very important, right? Getting with the city. Um, so the first things that we'll do, depending on what program an investor wants to, to, to put them put their money in, um, we'll identify a, a program of sort, whether that's, um, you know, guaranteed Section 8 housing, whether that's guaranteed workforce housing, whether that's um, our military rental program. There are tons of different programs that we have available. So first off, we identify the program in which to set an investor in. Um, two, we identify potential opportunities, which are properties um, and multifamily, raw land, new build, whatever it is. And then we go into the acquisition phase. So we purchase the property. Closing for us is usually about two weeks or so. So relatively long, but at the end of the day, we're thorough. Um, get our plans approved by the city. That usually takes another week or two. And then from there, we start building. Our build time and rehab times, we're usually within three months or so. So we're not super elongated out. Um, our building team, we can build just about anything. we got about 450 builders on staff, plus uh, you know, including our master electricians, plumbers, and everybody else in between. And then from there, um, with each of our programs, each of your renters is identified prior to your property being complete. So we have pre-leases through our military rental program. We have pre-leases through our BASH program. We've got pre-leases through everything. So um, in these markets, you're looking at something that goes from $30,000 house, $60,000 rehab, depending on the property, um, but $60,000 max. We have uh, 7% of the property management and you're getting, again, anywhere from $1,100 to $1,300 a month rental income. Um, so our, our investment cycle is literally something you can just do rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, depending on your investment style. Um, again, most people are refinancing at about 80% with the local banks. And that's another big thing I'd recommend people do. Work with the local businesses down there, at least the local suppliers and the local um, banks. For the reason that the local banks need to give out loans in their area, they want to give out loans, they have to. Um, they're willing to give you 80, 90% of your ARV um, depending on how many deals you do with them. So we're seeing a lot of people take home 85, 90% of their ARVs on their homes every time they cash out refinance. So most of my investors are walking away with about twenty, twenty-five thousand $25,000 in cash from each deal. That's amazing. Again, that touches on you get all your money back plus profit. So you're into it for no money down. You get cash flow every month and you get tax-free money in your pocket to go and reinvest. And what I love about that is when you do that the right way, as soon as they get paid off, they're going to go, that was awesome. Can you do that for me again? And that's really how you start to plant those seeds. It's, it's like you said, people want returns, but some of the ones that don't know any better and they don't see really what's out there, 
they go, well, I want to make more money. I want to be rich. It's like, okay, cool. You can go and maybe get a grand slam on this deal. But the ones that you're swinging for the fences for, you could easily strike out. What you're doing is building a long-term business. So maybe the first one won't get you rich or the second one won't get you rich, but two, three, four, five years from now of just recycling and having you finding another property and another property, that's what you're going to look back on and say, now I am rich. Now I do have all this cash flow. Now I can do whatever I want just on either the cash flow monthly to walk away from your job and cover your expenses. Or if you're looking at pulling 10, 15, 20 grand out of each of those properties cash free every four to six months, that stuff starts to really add up. And then you go back to those same banks. They see that you're a player in the area. Now they're willing to give you a lot more leverage for something else that you might not get from your Chase's, your Bank of America's, or your Wells Fargo's. So, I mean, that that's really the true way that somebody gets financially ahead is the building blocks that you're doing, not to get rich quick schemes. I think that that's awesome. And it's one of those big things too. Uh, man, it's just been, it's been crazy out here for what we've been seeing. But these tertiary markets are, I don't want to say they're crash proof, but if you're buying a property at 35 and you're only putting 60 into it, hypothetically speaking, um, if the market ever downturns like we ever had in 2008 again, Lord forbid, um, your investment is still safe, right? Because as long as you get your 1% rule, you're not uh, in jeopardy. So as long as you make, what, $650 a month, you're still cash flowing a great deal. Um, during hardship times, that's a really good thing you can utilize. And those bigger markets where you, people are paying $650,000 and trying to rent out each room for $1,000 in the six-bedroom house, um, you know, not necessarily good luck, but it seems like a lot. And when I want to come and play in the larger markets, all I have to do is go out and refinance all of my deals in a different market, a tertiary market, and I can buy whatever I want in a place like Dallas or Austin or Houston. Easy. Because that's how much buying power having these small, cheap properties gives me. Yeah. I mean, I know so many more people that have retired on the stuff that doesn't look pretty in the pictures, but looks great financially. looks great on your bank statements. looks great in your asset classes when you're bringing them to a bank than some of those pretty ones from properties. And it's exactly like you said, the guys that own those are able to own those from buying those types of properties that they refinance out. So you use that business to fund whatever lifestyle you want in that, that area. And I, I think that's always going to be the best way to go, man. That, that's what protects you long-term. Um, one of the things that you and I were talking about when we went to dinner was people look at military housing and they go, well, what if the person gets deployed? And you brought up some really cool stuff that I had never even heard of that I think was amazing about how there's ways that you can actually have things in your contracts that'll guarantee your rents for a certain amount of time if they wind up getting deployed for you know X amount of time. So, so talk through that a little bit because I thought that was something that was very unique that nobody had ever said to me before. Gotcha. So with, with Reunion's program and, and our military housing contract, our rents are guaranteed for uh, 50 years. We've had our contract for five years, so 45 years left, um, guaranteed government rental income as long as we house military members. If a military member ever puts a fist through my wall, a shoe through a window, whatever it is, um, the military base that that member is a part of will pay for that damage um, and or kick that member out. And that's no cost. If the military member deploys, which I know is a, a big fear to investors, um, the reunions programs at any base, the military will actually put another renter in place for you. 
or cover that rest of the month's rent for you as well. So there's a lot less risk in some of these markets. Again, properties are cheaper. Government's carrying a lot of the risk for you. Um, on top of that, there is the government buyback system through our contract. So again, any property in our, any single family property in our, uh, in our inventory of homes that we use to house military members will get purchased back from the military should the base close. That's outstanding. That's pretty so, yes, cool. Like, it's a no risk investment. It's not no risk, but least risk uh, involved in anything else. And I think honestly, it's something that a lot of people can get behind because if you've seen military housing, a lot of it has lead paint, asbestos, radon. There are homes from the 70s, the 60s, and um, military members don't like living in them anymore. So if we can provide that off-base housing, the military is no longer a landlord. They're just a renter. And the military, when they go out and build new homes and own new homes, it's very expensive. So they've looked for ways to cut this cost down. And right now, I think they're looking at a few other contractors, but there's definitely a need for more military housing throughout the country for people to live in. I think that's huge, man. And uh, I know you served in the military, so thank you for your service. I think that that's awesome, man. Thanks for paying your taxes. (laughs) (laughs) If you guys are getting anything from the podcast and some of the great knowledge and tips that the guests are sharing, please take a minute and leave a review on iTunes or any of your platforms with some stars and some comments, helping spread the promotion and spread some visibility for the podcast, for the guests, and for the knowledge so we can continue to do this. It'd only take a minute. I appreciate it if you guys could take the time. It would go a very, very long way. Again, leave a review on iTunes. Start to share. Start to spread the word. I really would appreciate it if you're getting anything out of this. Thank you. I uh, I know I told you about my buddy Tony, but uh, and I'll I'll link you up with him. I'm going to send him this episode. But one of the things I really like talking to people about when we do these podcasts is I was listening to people watch when you got up and you talked about what you do. And there were some other military guys that were with us in Hawaii, and they said the contacts he has and the things that he's doing are not easy to get. You have to work off to get them. You have to really dig deep. You have to you have to dig through a lot of dirt and get your door a lot of doors slammed in your face to be able to get to where you are and get a lot of the things that you have in place. And what I like seeing is what was that climb like? What were some of the, the things that you'll see? Because most people, I know 90% of the people that hear this, they go, oh yeah, I want to listen to that because I've always been interested in military housing. And then they get fired up for two or three weeks. They make a couple of calls. Somebody that knows nothing about real estate or military housing goes, ah, you can't do that. Or I got a guy that'll help you. And they give them some nonsense. And then the person winds up losing interest, seeing it's too much work or just quitting or getting discouraged. So how did you go from just being a guy in the military, probably making basic military wage to taking that into something that you saw an opportunity, decided to go towards a goal, towards a dream and really create a completely different lifestyle off of that. Whereas I'm sure a lot of people have tried that and quit along the way. What were some of the, you know, what was some of the building blocks? Hockey story behind that. Yeah. So uh, essentially, I mean, long, long story. I bought my first property when I was 18. Um, for my VA loan, I fixed it up. So no money down, 2% interest. Um, this duplex that was a nightmare, but I got deployed and these two uh, master sergeants said, hey, you know, let me rent out your property and we'll fix it up for you. So they fix up this property. I don't charge them rent for their first year. I'm away and this guy calls me and, you know, he's like, I want to buy your house. And at first I'm like, okay, weirdo, click, <laughs> uh, calls me back. He's like, no, no, I'm serious. So he asked me how much I have in the property. I tell him, he's like, okay, well, based on what you're getting for your rent, I'll sell you this property. I'll, I'll buy this property from you. 
um, at $200,000. So I had made a very large uh, profit from my first house. And I, I kind of realized early on that investors wanted stuff like what I had and military members wanted better housing and living in military housing just got awful. So what I did was um, I filed for all of my government contracting paperwork done in Bradsheet, got my DUNS number, got my SAM number, my SAM account set up. Um, and there's a lot of, it's a long process to get going for a lot of it, but you can stay in there. Um, you may want to go to your local congressman or congresswoman and kind of, you know, ask them about some endorsements for something um, involving affordable housing for military, homeless, and um, Section 8, because there's tons of funding out there for it. And what I did was I, I ended up creating this proposal for the DOD um, on how to mitigate the cost spend of housing. That was a, a big thing that they wanted to figure out how to do. And I sent them this proposal. Um, it took a long time to kind of get everything together, what it would look like going back and forth and making everything happen. And about five years from uh, my application day to get everything going, we, we got our, our approval to go ahead and start providing that military housing for people. And that's been, it's been one of the best joys of my life is giving back to my brothers and sisters serving um, but also our concept runs a little bit deeper than that, right? Um, these people are trusting us to house their families, to house them, to keep them safe and in a place, right? They do so much for us. So for us, the investor, it's about doing so much for them too. And it's about living in a house that makes you feel like a millionaire. It's about having businesses around that make you feel like a millionaire because if they can trust us, the investor, to rent to them in Wichita Falls, Texas, Lawton, Oklahoma, Colleen, Texas, they will trust us to rent a house in Florida, in California, and and anywhere in the world, in Mexico, you name it, wherever there's a military base, we can build that housing where they can rent from us and they can always have that trust that we're going to take care of them in the best way possible. Makes you money. It's probably rewarding at the end of the day as well, right? One of the best, one of the best things in my, of my life. I, uh, my, my favorite story I like to tell people was, um, there was this, this, I must call him a kid, but you know, he was uh, about 35. He's getting out of the air force and he tells me, you know, listen, I've saved up so much money. I, I want to buy this house from you. And he had no clue about his VA loan. He had no clue about any of the tools available to him to, to buy this house. So I told him, listen, here's the deal. You use your VA loan, you buy this house. I'm going to build you a studio in the garage to rent it out to other military members because he wanted to be an investor himself. So his VA loan, and just so you all know, VA loans are great tools. Um, they cover about $450,000 of the purchase price. It's zero money down to the buyer. Um, and it only covers their primary residence. But if they make the tweaks to it, that doesn't count. So we made the tweaks. We made it the second unit. And um, I got this letter from him where he was just so excited, so happy. And this was about three years ago. I got this letter from him this year. And he's told me, you know, I've got 16 investment real estate properties. You know, I, I've been able to turn what you taught me into something that I teach everybody else who's a veteran, right, on how to invest and how to make sure. So that's the rewarding part is making sure that I get it. You know, a lot of people don't want to share their secrets, but it's not a secret, man. Giving back to people and making sure that somebody has a decent place to lay their head down at night after serving our country, I'm not going to hoard that to myself. And I know that I get to teach people, which means the whole entire world becomes a better place. And I know that everybody can can feel better about what they're doing. And that's all it's about, man, is just giving them, giving back to the people who, who give to us every single day. You know what I'm saying? I love that, man. I think that's awesome. Have you always had that confidence and that drive? Or was it something that 
took time and, you know, I'm sure there was a learning process and a curve as you were going through this. Were people that you were in the military with or people in your life telling you, you know, hey, don't do that. That doesn't work. You know, why don't you just, you know, I'm sure just going the military alone, people were probably like, maybe that's dangerous. But what was the, the initial perception or fears as you started to build this? Uh, well, my initial perception of fear was like, what if nobody wants this, right? Um, but you really don't know unless you try. And for me, the confidence, I don't know. My mom told me she loved me a lot when I was younger, so I can't say that. <laughs> but uh, um, it definitely makes you feel invincible. So best advice I could say to somebody would be um, make sure that you identify those needs. And you can easily build a confidence in it because all you have to do is repeat something that you ask somebody. Every time I'm in a tertiary market, whether I'm driving to my house in Colorado or whether I'm stopping in an airport somewhere, um, I'm going to ask the people who are working there, like, what would you like to see, right? Like, what would make this place better? What would, what would, what would, what would make you have more fun here? Um, and what I do is I go to my investors and I say, well, listen, you know, I had never really thought about Tulsa, Oklahoma, but it turns out there's nothing to do there. Why don't we go build a, <laughs> why don't we go build a Dave and Buster's? And, you know, they may say, well, why Dave and Buster's? And I say, well, because, and I list off everything all those people told me. Because those are good enough reasons for me. There should be good enough reasons for anybody else. So that's where you can build that confidence from is making sure that what you're saying is coming from the mouths of the people. That's awesome. Now, watching what you turn that into, I know when we were in Hawaii, you were working on getting uh, some bigger funding and some, some like huge numbers and stuff. And when we started that talk and you said that that's pretty much a go now, current focus on on raising money and, and the bank stuff you were talking about. Can, can you get into that yet or is it still a little bit too oh, early? Absolutely. So essentially uh, we had this large fund we were raising money for a hundred million dollars. That's kind of turned into a JV where we were able to take um, a certain percentage of money and go borrow about 250 million. So we're able to expand our reach a little bit more, but I'm starting three other funds for Baltimore. Um, I've got another fund going right now for just commercial military franchising um, where we're working with a bunch of different military owned companies to get franchises out there for people to utilize. So, I mean, raising money for us is, is um, at first it was difficult, but once you start raising money um, and utilizing it the way you said you were going to and doing the things you said you were going to, whether you, whether you make a billion dollars, or you lose it all. As long as you do what you were saying that you said you were going to do, um, people are always going to be willing to say, hey, listen, you know, it happens, but here's some more. Let's see about this next opportunity. And that's one of the biggest things I can say has been a, a very good product of reunion is our client base has trusted us with a lot of their own life savings, whatever they have, their 401ks, their IRAs. They've trusted us with something that is way bigger than just myself, my employees, and my company. They trusted us with the legacy of their children, the legacy of, of whoever is after them. Um, they promised, they, they've given us something so much more than just capital and that's trust. And once you build that trust with people, um, they're so much more keen to say, listen, we trust you, your ideas, here's, here's this money. I think that's huge, man. I could not agree more. I was, uh, I was having a conversation at jiu-jitsu yesterday with somebody that asked me about partners. And I was like, you know, I've had a lot of partners over the years and most of those partners started out as friends and now they're neither. It's like, oh yeah, money makes things weird. And I go, you know what? It wasn't really the money. It was more of the, they weren't doing what they said they were going to do. And they were painting this picture like they were 
doing all this stuff and they were working their butts off and we were kind of all in this together. And then I realized that I was the one who was doing most of the stuff and they were the one who were just barking orders and really dropping the ball and it wound up affecting stuff. And at the end of the day, when it came time to own up for the stuff where the ball got dropped, they were nowhere to be found. And it was, okay, well, it's easy to just go, oh, not my problem, point the finger and wash your hands. But I go, if you want the long ball, if you want to, that's somebody else's money. You don't get to just take somebody's money for a property and then just check out when things don't go great and go, ah, you know, it's, it is what it is. No, like you said you were going to do something, you do it. And that's what sticks out. And I feel like that's what keeps you in there longer is that communication is so huge that there's always a risk in real estate. Like you just said, um, we were talking earlier about military and you were like, well, nothing's really guaranteed, but you want to hedge your bets as low as possible. You're getting into real estate. Real estate investing is always going to have a risk having the stuff that you put in place is always going to hedge that bet to make it as little bit of a risk as possible. Yeah. When those things do happen, how do you handle it? That's what people are going to remember. Nothing's perfect, but did you communicate? Did you do the right thing? Did you try your best? Did you have the right integrity to try and right those wrongs and, and make things right and put that person first? That's what people remember, not the guy who, hey, things are great. It's easy to be good when real estate's going up and everybody's making money and you can buy a house anywhere and six months later, mm-hmm. make a profit on it okay, great. It's easy to be rainbows and sunshine then. But when things are not, how do you handle yourself? And I've always been the guy, like my buddy Tim always says, you know, I'll pick up a shift at Burger King if that's what I have to do to pay my investors back at the end of the day. I'm not going to screw them because I told them I was going to do something and I don't get to just renege on that because then I'll never have another business partner again. So I think that's huge, man. I think think those are the difference, right? And so a lot of people, and this is a word of caution to most of you, but going into a tertiary market for short game is is not the play. Um, doing awful work is not the play. In a large city, it's something you can get away with until a certain point. Um, in a tertiary market, it's a lot smaller. And that point um, you can get away with things longer is a lot shorter, a lot shorter. Because the moment somebody catches you doing what you're not supposed to be doing, the entire city knows about it. And that is key because, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, when I first started this out, I had my cousin who was my builder at the time, he stole $3.5 million from my investors. Man. Guess who had to pay that back? Not him, <laughs> me, right? I had to pay that back. So I had to pay the $3.5 million of rehab money back to my investors. On top of that, I had to finish their projects for them. So I was That's out why there. you're still here. That's why I'm still here. Don't get me wrong, it hurt. Um, <laughs> but with that, because I told them what I was going to do and I said, this is going to happen no matter what, um, every single one of those investors is still with me today. And that has been one of the biggest lessons I could have ever learned in life was if you just do what you're going to say, if you do what you said you were going to do, everything will always work out. I agree, man. I think communication is huge. And the same way you said in the smaller markets, you have to be very careful. I found that that works for you and against you. So one of the properties we were doing in Oklahoma, initially I was talking to one of the contractors that he'd be just a crappy contractor, but he goes, Hey, I can't get anybody quality in here because everybody in these small towns knows that this is a place that people came to work and then they didn't get paid when they did the work. And I'm like, man, I get that. But that was the old owner and I bought the property. So if it's that small an area, everybody probably also knows that that guy doesn't own the property anymore. And now I do. And there's new owners. So while you hear all these people slamming this building and slamming the owner, this is a great opportunity for you. Word of how great I treat you and how you get paid. And, you know, I kind of take it and I push it right back. And I'm, hey, everybody talks here. Great. If everybody talks here, you let them know how good I 
product we're putting out here for the city and you get those words out. And again, the next week we had good people back in there. So it's easy to, if you're doing things wrong to have everybody know about it, but also you can create really good momentum in those cities when you do exactly like you said, and you do the right thing and you take care of people. And, um, you know, even little things like we had our property manager go around and just give little Starbucks gift cards and little yeah. food baskets to everybody when they came in. And that just made a few people come to the leasing office that initially were like, Hey, you know, just so you know, when you took over here, the word was you're going to come throw everybody out on the street tomorrow. I was like, well, I mean, we couldn't even do that if that was the plan, but it's not. And you get a couple of people on your side and then they go and they're your eyes and ears in there. And that, that literally just changes everything, man. Just some of those little things of using that little gossip, it can work for you, it can work against you, but you have to do the right by people. I, I think you nailed it, man. That's awesome. Yeah, man. And so the other big thing I'd say to some people too is uh, just be patient with uh Man, just be patient with the cities. You know, if you if you're coming from a big city where big things happen often, um, don't expect to go to a to a smaller city and expect the same amount of openness, speed, and understanding. Sometimes, you know, they just no one's ever wanted to come through and build a 150 unit luxury complex, <laughs> right? So make sure that you're walking them through. You're patient. It may take you know an extra month or two to get things going. It may take a week because they really need it. But at the end of the day, just be patient and make sure that you are advertising to the people. As Nick said earlier, right, it's, it's a matter of like figuring out um, who's against this and who's for it. And you can easily turn people against it by just sending the right information to them. You know how much you can get a targeted Facebook ad for? Cheap. They get the right information on a targeted Facebook ad? Look at that. That's how Trump won, right? Um, that's how we want to make sure that we are making the people know about the great things we're building for them is advertising. That's, that's always key, especially like for us, we just finished building uh, two senior living facilities and we built them in a reputation in a place where the reputation was that you go to a senior living facility to be treated poorly and you die. So we had to put up these giant billboards and Facebook ads and mail-ins um, of this luxury place. We built this beautiful pool and lo and behold, after three weeks of marketing, we filled up both of our spots and yeah, like three weeks. It was perfect. It was as soon as we finished it, people were ready to move in and ready to rock and roll and Every time I go down there, everybody's got a drink in their hand and a smile. It's, you know? it's like those little people love it. That's cool, man. That's awesome. That's awesome. So in closing now, people are listening to this, especially I know a lot of my military buddies that I said I was going to do this podcast and send it to them. Somebody's an investor. Somebody's trying to just do something with the military. What type of people do you want to reach out to you and what type of audience, what type of services are you looking for? What can we do on this podcast to help bring you uh, more business, more resources, more partners. How can we help you? I think it comes down to the to the fact of we're looking for anybody who one wants to learn about this. Um, learning about tertiary markets is key when investing in tertiary markets. I mean, even if you are a client of Reunion, we make sure that every client is up to date on the economics happening that affect that region, um, the politics that are happening that affect regions. So we're looking for people who want to learn first and then invest. If you already know and you feel like you've got it and you don't want to, you don't want to learn, that's perfectly fine. Um, we are looking for active and passive investors who want to own properties, fix them up, and receive that income. Again, Reunion takes care of helping you find the right property, helping you rehab it and manage it, and do the property management. Um, a big thing from our contract as well is we know when your next renter arrives three months and four days before your current renter leaves, which means you have four days of vacancy for every single day of your property that you have. That's sick. 
if people want to follow you, find your company, reach out to you, what are some great ways to get you on social media, websites, contact info? So it's Reunion Investments on LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, for our website, it's going to be Reunion Investments LLC. And then our phone number is 214-438-4809, extension zero. If you want to reach my head of sales, it's extension two. If you want me or anybody from my organization to come and speak about this and teach people and just connect with you on how to how to do economic development better, how to make sure you're not you're not missing out on something, uh, it's going to be extension one for Carrie Ermitz. She's kind of the, the key person on how to develop something into something better um, for not just the investors but everybody involved, and that's really the key to making sure that um, one you make your money back and two the city will keep allowing you to do everything you need to do to make more and more money. Because ultimately the only people who are going to stop you is the city. And as long as you tell them what you're doing and you keep them involved, they're never going to stop you. I think that's awesome. And if anybody's listening to that, that actually wants to book you, I will say, I don't know if the the podcast will give that out, but after spending some time with you, man, you have great energy. You're very personable. You're very easy to talk to. You have a, a, a way of just making people feel relaxed. And I feel like that that's going to really help if somebody's looking to help teach that or present that or he's looking to invest. You definitely come off as somebody trustworthy, somebody respectful, and uh, and somebody fun and just down to earth. And I really appreciated that. I thought you had a you know, really good presence about you. Me and Al both enjoyed spending time with you. So did Jared. So I appreciated the time in Hawaii. I appreciated the time on the podcast. Any, uh, any closing thoughts, messages, sentiments, anything from you, Solomon Floyd? No, oh, buddy. Uh, thank you so much for having us. I look forward to hopefully seeing you in New York come Christmas time. But uh, for the most part, thank you so much for the opportunity to be on your show and talk to your amazing audience. And I appreciate you, brother, man. I hope you have a great time in Florida. Um, and for the most part, you know, thanks again, buddy. Definitely, man. Pizza on me. If you come to New York, hit me up. We'll figure it out. All right. Beer's on me, then. If pizza's on you, how about that? Ah, that's the deal, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my dude. That sounds Thank great. Thank you, man. Thanks. Solomon Floyd, ladies and gentlemen.